Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.17, Trial and Aftermath. As the sun rose on March the 6th, Boston was a city reeling with their new reality. It had been a sleepless night in the town, as news spread of the attack by the British troops the night before. Captain Preston was now in custody and had been for a few hours. British troops had pulled back in an attempt to relieve some of the overwhelming pressure now bearing down on the city. Along King's Street, near the Customs House, the snow was stained red with the blood of the injured and the dead, a testament to just how much had changed over the past 24 hours. The Boston Massacre had been both shocking and yet completely expected at the same time. Since the fall of 1768, when the British troops had first arrived, this was the thing that everybody had been talking about. It was the greatest fear of the colonists. Benjamin Franklin had, the year before, written about his fears of blood being spilled. Yet, despite these predictions of disaster, a large-scale event did not take place until nearly a year and a half after the first troops arrived in the city. Despite all of those warnings over the previous year, and a sense that bad things were just on the horizon, when the feared and almost prophesied event came, everybody was left thunderstruck. For Thomas Hutchinson, March the 6th was going to be unlike any day that he had previously experienced. Working with very little, if any, sleep, Hutchinson was left facing a colony that was at very real risk of launching that same day into an open rebellion against the crown. To his credit, he had acted quickly the night before to announce an investigation into the shooting. Furthermore, his arrest of Preston and the men involved helped with relieving the immediate tension on the colony though it opened up other troubling questions for both Hutchinson and the British leadership over the fate of the jailed soldiers. It was also a temporary measure. Arresting the men was not going to be enough. The colonists were going to expect that much more be done. Hutchinson did not have to wait long to see the colonists' reaction. The next morning, a huge gathering formed at Faneuil Hall. Unsurprisingly, it was Samuel Adams acting as the de facto voice of the aggrieved colonists. Also there that day was Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple to represent the position of the army. Unfortunately for Thomas Hutchinson, the meeting would prove to cause him even more problems, as clearly he was not on the same page as Dalrymple. The position of the colonists was that the only solution here was the immediate removal of all British troops from Boston. Nothing about this request should be a surprise, considering that it was the exact thing that Samuel Adams and company had been pushing for since the fall of 1768. However, for Hutchinson, this presented a real problem. Questions over his ability to issue such an order notwithstanding. Hutchinson found himself trapped in between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he was very nervously looking at the significant threat of an open rebellion. Should said rebellion manifest itself, 
he was surely going to want an army there to put it down. In Hutchinson's view, the army was the thing that was helping keep everybody in check. On the other hand, it was that very same army that, the night before, had spilled the blood of Bostonians. Literally, the blood of their fellow colonists was still plainly visible, right now, right down the street. The army had to go. Hutchinson decided that the best option was to just simply punt, and deny that he could do anything at all. He explained that his hands were tied, and that there was nothing he could do. Dal Rimple, however, decided that he was going to go ahead and do Hutchinson a most unwanted favor. Dal Rimple spoke up and clarified that he could go ahead and remove the regiment that had everybody so worked up. It was no problem. Hutchinson, a far more astute politician than Dal Rimple apparently was, probably wanted to strangle the guy. Samuel Adams, not missing his mark, pointed out that if Dalrymple had the authority to remove one regiment, surely he could withdraw both. Hutchinson, having to deal with the fact that Dalrymple had just blocked his punt, quickly turned to calling the meeting itself illegal, himself not wanting to simply hand Boston over to the angry masses. Hutchinson indignantly stood up, adjourned the illegal meeting, and went to leave. And then, yet again, Dalrymple decided to speak. This time he suggested that there should be another meeting that afternoon, assuring both Hutchinson and the crowd that it was no problem whatsoever. Hutchinson reluctantly relented. Following the meeting, Dalrymple went ahead and let two members of the council know that should Hutchinson ask for Dalrymple to remove the troops, he would go ahead and do it. After hours of fiery, impassioned speeches, the writing on the wall was too clear for Hutchinson to ignore. He had no choice if he wished to maintain the peace in Boston. The crowd was aware that Dalrymple was willing to pull back, and that everything now sat squarely upon the shoulders of Thomas Hutchinson. Dalrymple, wanting to cover himself, made sure that Hutchinson made the request in writing. However, the damage was done. The decision was made. The British troops were leaving Boston and pulling back to Castle William. The British soldiers and officers left feeling absolutely aghast at the fact that a bunch of provincials had managed to chase them right out of town. Before March was over, the troops would be out. When Thomas Gage had learned a few days later of what had happened, E2 promised that there would be an investigation, and if the law was broken, those offenders would be punished accordingly. However, Gage tempered his remarks by noting that should the men have acted in self-defense, they should not be openly sacrificed to the whims of the mob. This shows the difficult position that the British were actually in. Gage knew that if he just swept Captain Preston and the company out of the colony, it was surely going to make everything worse. However, should Gage allow the process to play out, he was running a huge risk of the soldiers being convicted. He certainly could not allow for British troops to be hanged in Boston Commons. The shooting had been a stunning turn for Boston, 
and it was something that completely took over the colony. There was the expected propaganda battles, with Sam Adams referring to the event as being a horrid massacre. The radical camps took to portraying the event as having been a premeditated strike against the colonists. Well, the British supporters argued that the mob had forced the hands of the soldiers to act in self-defense. The funerals for four of the five victims, one of the five who would die did so following the main funeral, was an absolute spectacle. Held on March 8th, some reports have in excess of 10,000 people showing up out of a population of 16,000. While those numbers may well be exaggerated, it is safe to conclude that the funerals were very well attended. Keep in mind that this is happening less than two weeks after the funeral for Snyder, which had previously been depicted as the largest to that point in American history. The service for those killed on March the 5th absolutely dwarfed it. The battle to control the narrative would be waged between the two sides for months afterwards. Both sides wanted to ensure that their story was told as dramatically as possible, to further bolster each party's position. The soldiers who had participated in the shooting that night gave deposition after deposition. All of them stuck with the story that they were acting in their own self-defense. For the British, this was going to be the party line. Gage, understanding that by the end of March, narratives of what had happened were on their way back to London, he was busy trying to control the narrative at home. What Thomas Gage really needed, therefore, was time. He needed a chance to ensure that the London public felt bad for the men who were going to be put on trial for this while at the same time blaming the colonists in Boston for what had happened. Gage realized that these trials might not go well, and wanted to ensure that, should the need arise, the officials back in London would not actually allow these men to swing from the gallows. By the time that the summer of 1770 came around, tensions in Boston had eased some, though certainly they still did remain high. Well, the risk of open rebellion had diminished, as a natural result of people having had a minute to calm down. There was still no love lost between the British and the American colonists. Throughout the summer, a pair of pamphlets would spread information of what had happened in Boston the previous March. The short narrative was the colonists' version of events, and included the now famous engraving by Paul Revere on its cover. Countering the short narrative was the fair account, which was the version of events put out by the British. Unsurprisingly, this accounting put the blame for everything directly onto the shoulders of the Boston rabble. Well, controlling the narrative was important. Everybody knew that the main attraction was going to be the trial of the involved troops. There were high stakes on both sides. The British were deeply concerned about the soldiers getting a fair trial in Boston, plus that very real risk of the troops being martyred for the cause of the rebels. For the Sons of Liberty, the stakes were equally as high. They needed the men to be guilty, 
to support the narrative of British tyranny that they were trying to put out there. The fall of 1770 would finally see the trial of the soldiers. Gage had succeeded in getting the trials pushed back as far as possible, at least long enough that emotions could dull a bit as compared to where they had been in the spring. Boston officials had put together a powerful team to lead the prosecution. Samuel Quincy was to be a special prosecutor in the case, with Robert Treat Payne assisting him. The first thing that Preston and company needed was a good defense, something that many of the most prominent Boston lawyers were reluctant to provide. Eventually, Preston was able to find a lawyer willing to take the case, John Adams. Adams was to be assisted in his defense by Josiah Quincy. The obvious question that pops up here is why John Adams would want anything whatsoever to do with this particular case. Adams may not have been as vocal as his cousin Sam. However, to say that John Adams was anything less than fully dedicated to the same cause would be wrong. There had been some concern by Samuel Adams that John was being too passive. However, that goes more towards his style of response rather than any actual criticism of his belief. Adams' biographer, Paige Smith, makes the argument that Adams' decision to represent Preston and his men seems to have been an opportunity for Adams to show off both his talents and his independence. John Adams himself, years after the fact, pointed out his deep convictions that the accused deserved a fair trial and that Adams was determined to provide it. If you are going to go with the version that John Adams put out there, Adams is the hero for placing the law paramount to all else. This would fit well with what Paige Smith wrote, as it shows John Adams anxious to establish a degree of independence over events. However, it is difficult to look past the amount of vanity that Adams was exhibiting in the account and not wonder if, as a man who was often accused of some casual self-aggrandizement, he was overly inflating his own role. It has also been suggested, however, that Adams was picked specifically by the Sons of Liberty for the job. Josiah Quincy had agreed to take on the case after urging from the Sons of Liberty. It is also possible that the Sons had approached John Adams and requested that he personally take up the case. Now, if it sounds strange that the Sons of Liberty were out shopping for lawyers to represent the British troops, we need to consider a few things. First, Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty believed that the conviction of the soldiers was a foregone conclusion. What Boston jury would possibly acquit? Knowing that the soldiers were going to be found guilty, regardless of whomever took up their defense, the most important thing for Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty to do was to ensure the legitimacy of the trial. Sam Adams wanted the soldiers convicted, yet he needed there to be no question as to the legitimacy of those convictions. Therefore, the Sons of Liberty had a vested interest in making sure that the soldiers were indeed well represented, again assuming that none of this was going to matter 
because of course a Boston jury was going to convict the men. We know that the leadership of the Sense of Liberty had put pressure on Josiah Quincy to take the job. Another Adams biographer, John Fairling, points out that John Adams might have been promised future political office if he agreed to take the case. Indeed, shortly thereafter, John Adams did in fact end up with one of Boston's seats in the legislature. Whether it was for his own personal vanity, a deep-held belief in the law, and wanting to appear as an independent actor, or if it came with some cajoling from the sense of liberty, with the promise of a future political office. John Adams was about to represent the most hated men in Boston, who were on trial for their very lives. With the trial getting ready to begin that fall, the obvious defense for the British troops was what Thomas Gage had mentioned earlier self-defense, threatened by the menacing Boston rabble, with their very lives now at threat of being ended by the bloodthirsty mob. The men fired their muskets. When the trial came in late October, the first question that came up was exactly who was going to be tried and when. Were all the men to be tried together, or would Captain Preston, as the officer, be tried separately? Preston learned on the first day of the trial that the answer was that he would face charges separate of his men. This presented a concern for the soldiers. In the event that Preston was found not guilty of issuing the order to fire, would that not expose them to the full liability of what had happened? The problem for Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty was if the conviction of Preston and his men was a foregone conclusion. Apparently, nobody had sent John Adams that memo. Adams began his attack immediately during the selection of the jury, when he managed to convince the court that he alone should be allowed to challenge jurors. It is worth noting that whereas the legal system today is anchored in statutes, such as the rules of evidence and procedure, that is still not the case in the 18th century. Adams won major victories during this all-important phase of the trial, and by the time that the evidence phase began, Adams had a jury that included two of Preston's personal friends, including one man who had already been publicly advocating his belief in the captain's innocence. Pretty much everybody in the courtroom knew by the end of jury selection what the outcome of the trial was going to be. Adams had secured an overwhelmingly friendly jury for Preston. It is a baffling question why the prosecution did seemingly nothing and allowed the jury to be constituted in a way that was so clearly advantageous to the defense. This is something that historians have long debated and have been unable to reach any clear conclusions. The biases of the friends of Preston who made the jury were not a secret. It was something that the prosecution would have been aware of. However, despite this obvious reason to challenge jurors for cause, the prosecution remained silent. Between the two sides, over 50 witnesses were called over the course of a five-day trial, an exceptionally lengthy affair for the age. Throughout the trial, we see repeatedly the failure of the prosecution to establish bias in the witnesses. 
On the third day, the defense called Jane Whitehouse, who testified that she had been near Preston on March 5th and was certain that he had never issued the order to fire. The problem, and where the prosecution fell short, is that Whitehouse had married Private Joseph Whitehouse of the 14th Regiment at the end of March that same year. Here, the prosecution failed to ask a single question or even point out the fact that such a powerful defense witness might have a bias. Historian Serena Zabin suggests that the prosecution's failure to point out such biases was no mere oversight. Rather, the narrative had long been that there existed a deep gulf in between the soldiers and the citizens of Boston. The touting of the idea of a soldier marrying a Bostonian woman risked disturbing the carefully laid narrative. On October 30th, the verdict came down, and to the surprise of nobody who had watched the trial play out, Preston was acquitted. The prosecution of Preston had been a mess. Historian Hiller Zobel criticizes the prosecution's decision to put their best witnesses in the middle of the trial, thus denying themselves both a strong opening and closing. Regardless of what had happened, the conviction that had just a few weeks earlier seemed so certain was now gone. Captain Preston, certainly pleased with the acquittal, quickly got out of Boston, fearing that angry area radicals may be eager to take justice into their own hands. With the trial of Preston now concluded, there remained the matter of trying the other soldiers. Here, the question turned not over whether or not there was a direct order to fire. That trial of Preston had answered that question in the negative. But rather, was the decision to fire made in self-defense? Were the troops in mortal danger? If the answer was yes, they were in mortal danger, then the shooting was justified, even if those who were killed and injured were not directly responsible for creating that state of danger. It is enough if the crowd alone created that sense of danger for the soldiers. If, on the other hand, the men were not in danger and they fired anyway, then they were guilty. The trial of the soldiers got underway at the end of November. For the prosecution, their goal was simply to prove that the soldiers had been present that night at the customs house and that they had fired their muskets. The burden of proof lay on the defense to show that the men had acted in self-defense. Although the jury for the troops was not as friendly as the one had been for Preston, that soldiers did not have any close friends on the jury, much to the annoyance of Samuel Adams, none of the jurors chosen came from Boston. Samuel Adams would complain that none of the jurors had experienced what it was like to live under the army's occupation. The trial of the soldiers was a long affair, lasting even longer than the trial of Preston. Part of this is because the court had ruled that evidence of the other fights in Boston that night would be admissible. 
this was important for both prosecution and defense alike. For the prosecution, this evidence showed the highly charged nature of events in the city and illustrated how throughout the town, soldiers were preparing for a fight. The defense, on the other hand, used the evidence to show the dangers that the enraged mob posed to the soldiers that night. Over 80 witnesses would come and testify as to what took place on the night of March the 5th. Here, records reflect that John Adams chose a more relaxed plan of attack, something which did cause some concern for Thomas Gage, who suspected that Adams was taking it easy in his responsibility to defend the men. On this point, Thomas Hutchinson disagreed with Gage. Understanding that Adams needed to act as a representative of Boston if he was to secure the men in acquittal. Adams understood the complete lack of sympathy that existed towards the soldiers. It was therefore John Adams' job to act in the role of a representative of Boston and to help the jury break through those undeniable prejudices. When the verdicts came back, it was a near-total victory for the defense. Only two soldiers, Hugh Montgomery and Matthew Kilroy, were found guilty. Not of murder, but rather the lesser-included offense of manslaughter. Nobody was going to hang in Boston Commons. Montgomery and Kilroy had their hands branded, and then were promptly released. At the end of the day, the trials had not produced the guilty verdicts that everybody had assumed to be all but assured back during the spring. On the surface, it seems obvious to say that the results of the trials in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre were nothing short of a catastrophic blow to the radical leadership in Boston. How could they not, at a minimum, be a crushing disappointment that would set the movement back significantly? The truth, however, is much more convoluted. And in reality, the acquittals did little to disrupt the cause of the Sons of Liberty. To look at just why that is, we must begin by dispelling the idea that just because the trials ended in acquittals, that it meant that those same trials were complete losses for the radicals. Let's go ahead and just set aside the verdicts for a moment and focus on how the trials did help further the narrative. The trials had clearly established a line of delineation between the British troops and the citizens of Boston. Recall earlier today we discussed that witness during Preston's trial, who had married a British soldier. The trials had done much to cover up the idea that any such interaction could have ever occurred. Historian Peter Messer argues that the massacre served the dual purpose of illustrating the dangers of both a military occupation, but also of uncontrolled mob actions. Ever since the Stamp Act, mob action had proved to be a powerful tool. However, even throughout the debates over the Townsend Acts, the Sons of Liberty had been leaning towards more outwardly moderate positions, such as non-importation, 
mob action made more moderate colonists uncomfortable, and it risked alienating and excluding a lot of otherwise sympathetic colonists. Practically speaking, non-importation was the more powerful tool. Recall that the British merchants were ultimately the game changers during the Stamp Act. Those local merchants tended to side with the more moderate elements in New England and were turned off by the more violent mob actions. This is not to suggest that mobs had completely lost their necessity. After all, in the end, it was the mob following the massacre that did in fact get the troops to pull out of Boston and retreat back to Castle William. For those colonists who were not really financially able to participate in non-importation, it gave them a, albeit frowned upon, yet still legitimate means of political participation. Despite this, the Sons of Liberty were desperate to attempt to reframe their resistance in more palatable ways. Other historians argue that the failure to secure convictions during the trials was inconsequential as compared to the far more important publication of the short narrative. The short narrative always held considerably more sway inside of Boston than the fair account. The short narrative managed to tell the story of the massacre that became the accepted truth throughout New England and indeed throughout all of the colonies. Consider for a moment the full name of the work, a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. That title quickly tells you exactly what you should expect. The argument therefore becomes that it was the short narrative that would stand the test of time as describing what had happened in Boston on March 5th, and that the outcomes of the trials had little impact on the lasting narrative of the massacre. Historian Neil York points out that the massacre was a tool for leverage. Bostonians were not interested in broad-scale rebellion. Nobody was looking for a revolution. Rather, the events in Boston provided leverage to use against the British in trying to accomplish their actual goal of imperial reform. The Boston Massacre was a serious event. However, it was not so serious that it caused an unbridgeable gap between the colonists and the British. The Boston Massacre paled in comparison to future events, such as the Intolerable Acts or Lexington and Concord, events that would be far more difficult to reconcile. I want to really emphasize that point, that we need to be careful not to fall into the trap that is hindsight. We know today what is going to happen. We know the way that the Boston Massacre is remembered 250 years later. The Boston Massacre was not a breaking point with Britain. It was something that could be utilized to further the Americans' position within the greater empire. Signs further point that by the time of the trials, nobody was really out for blood anymore. The delay that Gage and Hutchinson had orchestrated had done much to cool off the demands for revenge. Hutchinson noted his surprise at the general calmness of the people 
both before and after the trial. In fact, there were signs months before the hearings that the temperament was cooling. Josiah Quincy had expressed his concern about taking the case on in the first place. Quincy had been reassured by the Sons of Liberty, whom he aligned with, that his taking on the defense and indeed doing what was necessary to ensure a fair trial would in no way damage his position within the community or the group. Dr. Neil York theorizes that this is because the Boston Radicals did not need the murder convictions. Indeed, it was already being suggested by some that leniency may be a better tactic for Boston than revenge. There was a smaller third trial that took place in mid-December that I did not mention. The trial was over a few civilians who had been charged in relation to the massacre. The trial, however, was really not that big of news. People had already moved on, and the acquittals during those trials were basically non-affairs. It simply was not important either now nor then. Furthermore, despite the acquittals, Thomas Hutchinson still found his own power and control within the colony largely compromised. Hutchinson was struggling to maintain his own power as the Boston leadership firmly established who was really running the show inside of the town. In this way, the acquittals don't really appear to have changed anything. The Bostonians were in full control of the narrative, and that really is more important than any result that may have come out of the trial. At the end of the day, the colonists fully controlled the story of what had happened. Sure, there was the fair account, but really, nobody who mattered inside the colonies cared about that version. The short narrative told the story of what had happened. The definitive story. The Boston Radicals were able to sell their version of events and establish that deep rift between themselves and the troops. The outcomes of the trials were ultimately irrelevant when it came to the contemporary interpretation of the event. Furthermore, there was a view prior to trial that seeking revenge and bloodlust may actually hurt the Patriot cause. Either way, regardless of what had happened in that courtroom at the end of 1770, the story had been told and the Boston leadership had managed to paint the story exactly as they wanted it. As Dr. Serena Zabin puts it, trying to understand the responsibility for the Boston Massacre does nothing to explain how the massacre fits in on the path to the revolution. What matters is the political spin used to create the narrative of the events that immediately followed the shooting. By the time that the trials had ended, attention had shifted off of discussing what had happened and moved to the question of how to best commemorate it. Three months after the end of the trials would be their first anniversary, and Boston-area leadership had no intention of letting people forget what had happened. The commemoration of the massacre would become an annual event in Boston to ensure that it was never too far from the memories of the colonists. 
Next time, we are going to examine the period in between the Boston Massacre and the protests over tea. What emerged following the tumultuous events of 1770 was a brief interlude in events that would allow everybody to catch their collective breath. However, those years were not completely without conflict through the colonies, and indeed everybody continued to march steadily towards the eventual break with Great Britain. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time to discuss what came between the Boston Massacre and the Tea Protests. <laughs>